Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. We are broadcasting from the Morton Center at the Ag PhD Field Day site following the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Clinic. I'm Darren Hefty along with my brother Brian. All right, so during our show today, we have a live audience and we've just finished up our scouting and scholarships event. So if you've got a question, just raise your hand. We'll come around to you with the microphone. You can ask your question. And if you wouldn't mind, yep, so we got one right over there. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, just give us your first name and the state you're from. We would appreciate it. And then you can go ahead with your question. Hey, yeah, how's it going? My name's Great. Matthew. Uh, I just moved to Minnesota a few days ago, actually. So pretty new to this uh, area of where, the country. Where are you from? I just moved here from Boise, Idaho. Oh, wow. Yep. Um, my question is, I was listening to your show earlier this week about corn leaf diseases. Yep. Is there any data or research to show that uh, microbial health in the soils can help prevent the diseases or to, like the microbial health in the soils can help to um, determine maybe the susceptibility of, of certain um, plants to the diseases? I don't know if I've ever seen any kind of research like that. Have you, Darren? I have not seen the direct correlation, but I will say this. We've got so much to learn about microbes in the soil, microbes in the plant, uh, microbes just in our, in our environment in general. And when I think about plant health, if we've got great plant health, we have better tolerance to any disease that comes along. So I, I do know that anything that helps plant health is a good thing. So I would think soil microbes are. And I would think having a healthy soil is going to give you a little better shot of staying healthy longer, but I don't know that there's a specific microbe that's going to fight a disease or something like that from the soil, but uh, I, I think it's going to more play in in terms of plant health. All right, we get another question, a couple questions back here. Yeah, that, that's that's really good, and we're we're doing a lot of work with soil microbes, and you hear us talking about that quite a bit on the show. That's that's going to be interesting to see uh, when some of those connections get made. Yep, let's start over here. Uh, my name is Rachel. I live in Minnesota, and I was wondering what your guys's um, ideas or um, opinions are on fertilizing cover crops. Oh, great question. Yeah, cover crop use in our country is really growing. In fact, around the world, there's a lot more, more folks trying to do it. You may have noticed, too, we're at the Ag PhD Field Day site. We've planted grass and then uh, put our plots into that and killed the grass off. So we're trying to do what we can to just have soil conservation in this hilly ground. Well, one thing that... that well, that'd be get... a nurse crop, but I mean... There, there are different def, different definitions here, and I just say this. Are we truly talking about a cover crop, or is this a cash crop? And here's what I mean. A lot of people will say they're putting in a cover crop, and I go, oh, you're just going to do nothing with this and then plant next spring. And they say, well, no, I'm going to graze it or bale it. And I go, well, that's a cash crop then. So if it's a cash crop, we absolutely want to get as much as we possibly can out of that. So it just depends on what your goal is. If your goal is, oh, all I want to do is have something growing out there to hold the soil down, maybe build the soil up a little bit, but whatever, I don't really care, then I would say I'm not that worried about fertility with it. All right, how about this then, Brian? We planted a cover crop on our farm after corn silage harvest, and then we injected manure in there. How about that? How, what's your feeling with that whole process? Do you think well, the cover crop is going to use up a bunch of the fertility? Is it going to hold it there for our next crop a little bit better? What, how do you look at that? Well, with us, it's a little different situation with a lot of people. Okay, so we, we did a cover crop after silage. 
And that's great because that was late August and we have over two months of growing season yet. We wanted something to grow there to hold the soil down, not have as much erosion and that kind of thing. And then we came late in the fall and put manure in. Well, the cover crop's basically about done at that point. So it's really no big deal. We're not really technically fertilizing the cover crop. The cover crop was about to die anyway. It's oats and it was going to die off with the frost. But I would say this, like on the East Coast where they have issues in the Delmarva region, uh, so Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, they've got this Chesapeake Bay thing. So if you ever read about environmental issues in the United States with agriculture, that one comes up as number one. They're really sensitive about any nutrients getting into that Chesapeake Bay watershed. And so what those farm, many of those farmers do is because they have very light soil, they can lose their nitrogen and sulfate and boron like we talked about earlier today real quickly. So they'll put a cover crop in to suck that up as much as they can. We talked about it today too that soil organic matter will continue to release nitrogen and phosphorus and sulfur on a regular basis, even if there's no crop there. So if you say, well, I'm just not gonna fertilize in the fall, even then you might have a problem if you have lots of rain and light soil like some of those farmers do. So what they're doing now is they're putting out, many of them, it's, it's rye, and the whole purpose is to suck up as many of those nutrients as possible, and then as that crop dies, hopefully it's gonna release those nutrients for future crops. So anyway, all depends on kind of what you wanna do with that cover crop thing, but yeah, if I want the cover crop uh, as a cash crop and I need it to be amazing, I'm gonna fertilize it, fertilize for it up front. I'm gonna take another question here. Hi, my name is Jay, I'm from Illinois. I was just wondering if you can explain on the topic of corn rootworm, the BT gene and the RNAi uh, technology and what's the difference between those two? Very interesting. You know, when we think about corn rootworm, the challenge is we're worried about the larvae stage and right now the larvae are starting to impact our crop across the upper midwest so if you do some digging out in fields uh, take up the full root mass of soil and then drop that in a bucket of water you'll start to see the rootworm larvae floating to the surface now the only way to attack them is by putting a planting time insecticide out uh, putting something down in the furrow or right around where you're seeding or using one of these new traits. So we've got BT traits that have either single or now they're required to have multiple BT traits in them or this new RNAi technology in SmartStacks Pro and other future technologies coming. Okay, so, so explain what the RNAi is. So the RNAi is going to interfere, it's, it's interference in that plant. So it's not going to be able to produce a critical protein necessary for that, that insect to live. And that's, Wait, it's interfering in the bug, not the plant. In, in the bug, yes. sorry, in the bug. And that's really exciting technology. I just met with one of the large seed breeding companies this week. They were concerned, well, man, how long is that one going to, going to last before there's resistance out there? Much the same as the BTs when they got developed. I remember, Brian, you had a professor that was yep. worried about that. Yeah, certainly. But I'll tell you what, we got to take a break real quick. But we want to talk a little bit more about this BT, the RNAi, and then also how this uh, is similar to some of the COVID vaccines we've had recently. So we'll talk about all that right after this on Ag PhD Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and uh, we are broadcasting right after the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Clinic, taking questions from our audience. Just had a really good question come up before the break about uh, BT and RNAi and the things that we're using in corn traits to try to fight corn rootworm. 
and what what the differences are and and what we should be watching for there. Okay, so let's go back to this the BT thing and what we're really talking about here. So there and and this this came out years and years ago. There's an insecticide that's still labeled today for organic production actually. Uh it's called Dipel. And the the purpose of this it's uh it it's a natural thing this BT, it's Bacillus thuringiensis. And it has actually pretty decent control on certain insects like corn worm larvae. Well, the, the problem with the, the BTs it, for a lot of people is they're like, well, we've changed the corn crop. Well, the only real change with the corn and that BT is now we've got that same toxin in the corn as opposed to, oh, we can spray Dipel, and that's approved for organic production. Why is it fine to spray it over the top instead of literally put it inside the corn? It's the same stuff either way. That BT, either way, it's going to kill that bug. It's going to kill the bug in the same way, whether it's corn borer or, or corn rootworm or whatever it is. And it basically ends up being a protein that insects can't digest because they've got an alkaline digestion system. Yep. Or humans and and animals can digest because we have an acid digestion system. Yep. And so when I call it a toxin, it's only toxic to those bugs. It's not toxic to human beings whatsoever. So it does not have any impact on us at all. Okay. Now, here here's the thing that I wanted to share with you with uh these these COVID vaccines. What they do with the the um the RNA yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Good. The mRNA technology. Yep, the mRNA technology. It's called messenger RNA. And what they do is when they shoot that needle in you, it's not actually the vaccine that kills the COVID. What the vaccine does is it tells your body to make a protein the body wouldn't normally make. And that protein is what kills the COVID. It's the same thing that happens in the BT corn, where that BT isn't, we don't just put Dipel insecticide, just, oh, we're just going to throw Dipel inside the corn somehow. No, the, the corn is now basically told to make a protein it wouldn't normally make. It's the same, it happens to be the same protein that Dipel is. But anyway, it's the same concept. The corn is told to make a protein it wouldn't normally make. That, that protein has no impact on human beings whatsoever, but it does kill certain insects because, like Darren said, they have an alkaline digestive system rather than an acid digestive system. So when I had the opportunity to get the COVID vaccine, and I, this is not a debate about whether you should get it or not or anything else, I will just simply say this. I was very familiar with that technology, and I said, okay, if I'm going to have one, I'm not going to get the Johnson & Johnson one because I'm, I'm not as familiar with that. I am extremely familiar with mRNA technology because we use that in agriculture all the time. That's safe. That's proven. That's been out for many years. I'm doing that one. Anyway. All right, back well, to your corn well, rootworm question. Wait, uh, Brian but, doesn't have any corn rootworms that I'm aware of, so I don't know if the RNA technology is helping him. But <laughs> RNAi in a corn rootworm tolerant hybrid, I'm excited about because it's different than the BTs. We are seeing some resistance to the BTs, even the stack traits. So I, they're, they're, uh, uh, their clock is ticking right now, so we need some, some other tools. So I'm excited about SmartStacks Pro for that. You still have to have a good hybrid to get good yield. 
But in terms of protecting against rootworm, using the BT plus RNA, I think that's great. There's more new technology that will be coming in another 5 or 10 years, which I'm excited about. But for now, here's what we're doing on our farm. We're going to use SmartStacks and SmartStacks Pro type hybrids. Plus, we're going to put some insecticide out there where we're concerned about it. So we're going to have corn on corn because we're trying to produce corn silage for a dairy. So that's something where you utilize as many technologies as you can basically using multiple modes of action out there to try to protect resi from resistance. All right, to go back to my COVID vaccine oh, thing. Oh, no. Yep. Here we go again. Well, seriously, though, you think about Somebody it. Somebody ask him a question about drain tile. Then, then we'll move on. How, how, but, but just think, in, in our country, over half the people in our country have taken the mRNA, one of the two mRNA vaccines. Uh, that's a lot of people, right? Yet a lot of these same people are somehow, and for some reason, opposed to biotechnology. Do you know that the only way those vaccines ever got developed was because of biotechnology? It's the same concept that we're using to develop BT corns and some of the mRNA stuff. And I mean, or RNAi. I mean, it's just you can't stop technology. It's it's moving forward. It's great. It's safe. I, we're not worried about it at all. But anyway, if you took the vaccine, you should now be an enormous supporter of biotech. That's all. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Right. Next question. Right. I think Laura yep. Lee first. Hi there, my name is Sophia and I'm from Michigan. Uh, my question is, do you guys see any correlation between uh, head counts in wheat and yield or do you see an importance in doing those at all? Uh, head counts in wheat versus yield. Well, you know, here's the thing. It's fun, and it, we, we look at the same thing, whether it's in, in corn and you say, I need more population to necessarily get more yield. Eh, not necessarily. But uh, it's kind of fun to do those things and, and get out and, and see, okay, how is my yield being made? When I look at and just compare a, a head of wheat to an ear of corn, if you see, okay, I've got this many rows around and this many rows long, I can get this deep a kernel, I can get this kind of test weight or uh, heavier or lighter kernels. There's a lot of factors there. Having um, more heads and more kernels is certainly part of the, the calculation trying to get yield. Yeah. But even if you don't have as many heads or as many kernels, you can still make each one big and yep. heavy. Uh, so there, there are a lot of different ways you can influence yield. So there's some correlation, but to say that, oh, that's everything, no. Because if it was that simple, then anybody could just walk out and say, well, this is exactly what your yield's going to be, and it never works out. Oh, it's so, so fun, there's a though, little correlation, as, as we've, And this has been one of the cool things, uh, doing Ag PhD as long as we have, and just being curious guys, just trying to learn more. Uh, we've gotten to travel around the world, gotten to see talk to a lot of real high yielding producers the world record wheat grower is from new zealand uh, i mean he's crushing it down there with 250 plus bushels per acre and he's planting less population than we are in our state where a hundred bushel yield is fantastic Four hundred thousand plants per acre is all he planted to set the world record yield that's it and most people in south dakota are planting 1.5 million seeds per acre so so it's part of the equation yep. but not the whole thing yep all right next question Hi, I'm Deb from Minnesota. Uh, my question is related to the tissue sampling yep. that we looked at today. Um, a couple of years ago on our farm, an agronomist didn't want to do that. He wanted to instead use an electronic device that I think looks at the color. Sure. Yep. Um, bricks, what do you think of that? Testing. Does that just look at your nitrogen? And tell me more about it. Yep. 
Well, I think it's really interesting. We do have a number of different tools now available to us, so that's good overall, just lots of different ways we can measure things. I like getting numbers because I can manage numbers, uh, whether it's uh, a full, complete nutrient analysis or a BRICS test. Uh, we can influence those numbers, and we can kind of correlate them with yield and performance out in the field. I like the tissue test because I like seeing which exact nutrients could I change. And I do believe doing both will be pretty interesting to see if I do that tissue analysis and I see, hey, I'm really short in iron out here. And then you start adding more iron to your crop and seeing how that impacts the sugar levels, which is what the BRICS test is going to show you. Uh, I, I think that would be pretty cool to do both, actually. I, I, I think they show different things. I don't think the BRICS test necessarily tells you exactly what your iron level is in the plant. Uh, but it, it, it's kind of cool. We're, we're doing more work with the BRICS testing on our farm this year. Uh, and Rob could probably speak to that better than me than we ever have, really, right, Rob? And a lot of uh, a, a lot of the sensors that are out there now, whether it was the Green Seeker that came out, or there are many companies that are having sensors for weeds or whatever. But they're 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 trying to look at these sensors for how green is the crop, and a lot of times it's really just nitrogen. Bricks testing uh, it can go a little further than that. But either way, here's the thing: I don't care if it's Tissue testing, sensing right now, oh, how green is my plant, bricks testing, whatever it is, that's only telling you what's there today. And that's why we like soil testing to go along with that, because now we can be predictive for the future. It's nice to know where we're at today, but I really want to know how are we going to do down the road, and I can't figure that out with tissue testing, bricks, any of those methods. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep good records as you're doing any of these tests, keep track of what the weather is, what the growth stage is, where you're at with your growing degree units and so forth, so you get the right development stage too. Well, we'll take more questions from our live audience here following the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships clinic right after this. And we're back at the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Clinic. Uh, thanks for listening in today. We've got a live audience here. We're taking questions from them. And as you can tell, we're getting a wide range of questions. There, there's a lot of uh, real curious individuals, just like Brian and me, just, that want to learn more about agriculture and see what we can do to influence our production. Let's, yeah, and a uh, oh, and a, a little bit later here, we're going to be giving away over 70 scholarships. So we're super excited about that. That'll be in the last segment of our show today. All right, let's take another question here. Hey, this is uh, Kendall from Iowa. Uh, thanks for having us out here today. But I was just wondering your thoughts on kind of the uncertainty of the ag industry, given like the UK invasion of Ukraine, commodity prices, possibility of oncoming recession and those kind of things. What kind of advice do you have just for, for young farmers getting into the industry? Yep. My number one piece of advice, quit watching the news. <laughs> You're, it's only going to depress you. Seriously. The news is worse every year and all their whole job is to... It's sensationalism and to make you keep watching, okay? Turn it off, all right? The number one thing that, and, and well, I, I'll just put it this way. There's always going to be stuff happening in the world that, oh, we have to worry about this and we have to worry about that. Look, spend your time raising the best crop possible. If you do that and you don't focus on all this other stuff going on, you're going to do fantastically well. There are always going to be good opportunities out there, like with the Ukraine thing, because of that, now there's less wheat around the world. So what happened to the wheat price? Went way up. So at least right now, we have a good short-term opportunity, but nobody knows how that's going to pan out long-term. 
Uh, but then there are also going to be negative things like, for example, with energy prices. So I go back to the Ukraine-Russia thing. Well, okay, all of a sudden now uh, the energy prices are way higher, so that definitely impacts us as farmers, not just today, but for tomorrow too, because we got to truck all our grain. We have to truck fertilizer in. It's raising prices of chemistry and seed and everything else. So there's always going to be a back and forth. And some people get so caught up in that and they spend all their time worrying about this and worrying about that. Turn it off. You don't need any of that stuff. I, I mean, honestly, until COVID hit, I hadn't watched the TV news in 30 years and I was happy. Okay, seriously. <laughs> as soon as I had to start watching the news because I needed to know for our business and farm and everything else with COVID, then I wasn't as happy. Turn it off. I've turned it off again. A lot happier. Hey, I'll, I'll say this too. I was in college back in the 1990s and we studied the 1980s farm crisis in, in some of my classes, which was great uh, f to have economic teachers that, that really understood, hey, what happened now? We've had a few years that have gone by. We can look back and see. Uh, one of the big scary things, and our dad talked to us about this a lot, was interest rates. When interest rates went way up, uh, that, that was tough for guys, especially with their operating loans. So get yourself in a good position with your balance sheet. I see too many young people coming out of college that basically want to assume the lifestyle that their parents have of, you know what, I need a brand new truck just like my dad's got. I want that awesome house like my mom's always wanted. No. Uh, I, I mean, I came out of college and lived in a $200 a month apartment that had green shag carpet from the 70s. You know, it, it, it wasn't fancy. Uh, and I drove a car that had uh, well over 100,000 miles for a long time. Uh, don't, don't get caught up in all those things. Focus on what you can do that's going to make you money. And kind of like what Brian's talking about, the $100 an hour jobs, just try and put your dollars to work for you. Now, I'm not saying don't have fun. You got to have fun because life's short. But don't have the expensive fun that, hey, you know what? I'm going to have that $50,000 truck and have that whatever, $800 a month payment that could end up being a $1,200 a month payment when interest rates goes up. That, that was the big thing. I know for my dad through the 80s, uh, diversifying and not just doing one thing. You know, we were crop farming, but we also had a livestock operation. Unfortunately, our livestock operation did pretty well, yep. and that kept us afloat. Uh, so those kind of things are good. The other thing is, uh, for, for a lot of you, it's going to end up being, you know what, I'm going to have a job, and I'm going to farm. Or if I'm going to farm, maybe I'm going to do some custom work for some other farmers, something else that's going to bring in a little more income and try and accelerate your growth as a farmer. Because it's tough. I mean, you don't want to wait till you're in your 50s to finally have a little bit of money that you could do something with. So uh, you got to start saving on the early side and try and make smart investments when you don't have a whole lot of money. All right, let's take our next question back there. Hi, my name is Luke. I'm from South Dakota. And my question is, What's the best way to deal with pheasants, like to deter them from government buildings like the Aerostatus Center because you can't hunt them? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, pheasants are a, a great treasure to our state of South Dakota. They bring uh, a lot of hunter, hunters into our state, a lot of enjoyment, a lot of people that have great family memories of getting together for a big pheasant hunt. And, and uh, a lot of people across our state have great pheasant recipes, too, of how to cook them up in the best way. They are delicious. I will give you that. But unfortunately, they can be a real nuisance at times in cornfields uh, and in other areas where, where you can't hunt or control the population. 
in cornfields, I'll talk about that one because I know there's a solution. Uh, we see a lot of different things that farmers will try. They'll they'll actually some farmers will spread some corn out on the edge of the field just to give them some easy targets. Uh, so. I don't mean targets like shooting the pheasants. I just mean the pheasants have, hey, here's some corn. I don't even have to work for it. I'll just go over there and eat. And then hopefully their seed will germinate and their plants will come up and they'll get a stand established. Uh, the other thing that you could do is use a repellent as a seed treatment. Something like Avapel is a, a product you can put right on the seed. I know there's other markets where they're trying to repel different types of birds and, and things that want to dig up seed. It doesn't kill the animal or the bird. It, it just tastes really bitter and, and they don't like it, so they move on to something else. Yep, or you get a bunch of coyotes. Yeah, I don't like that. I see you wearing a jackrabbit shirt. You don't like coyotes either. <laughs> All right, next All right. next question over here. Uh, hi, my name is Kyle from Minnesota. Uh, so the last couple of years, I've noticed just some sulfur deficiency in corn just around my area. Um, That's a great observation, Kyle. You're absolutely right. Okay, thank you. Um, anyway, uh, how much sulfur should you be putting on corn, and when should you be doing that? And I guess, have you seen a return on investment for doing 40 to 50 pounds an acre? You know, that's great questions, and, and I know Mark in Wisconsin had the same questions. That's the first thing he caught me with today. He said, all right, you're talking about sulfur, and you said this fertilizer removal app that you've got, uh, you probably need to put on maybe even twice as much as what that thing says in your corn crop. It's been interesting, you know, as, as we've changed some rules in our country and we've reduced pollution, we've got less free sulfur in the air, and we're having to put more on uh, as farmers each year, which Brian complains about because he doesn't like to pay that bill. But personally, I like clean air and I like the uh, life expectancy potentially being a little higher. But uh, that said, sulfur, yeah, we're seeing that's a leachable nutrient. So if you could spoon feed it out there throughout the season, that would be great. Uh, at least two or three different applications uh, to, to spread your spread your odds out of of uh, keeping some of that available in the soil. I think that's a good thing. 250 bushel corn needs 37 and a half pounds. And that's assuming we have no loss. Now you'll usually have some carried in, you'll get some out of your soil's organic matter. So you're gonna probably have some out there no matter what. So when you say 40, adding 40 or 50 pounds, you might not need quite that much. A lot of the studies now are showing in Minnesota, if you add 20 to 30 pounds in a lot of fields that are, let's say, 225 bushel corn, a lot of times that's enough. But you can just try some things out. Quite frankly, that's how Darren and I do a lot of stuff. It's trial and error constantly. But yeah, I, and it's fun because one of us might be more interested in something than the other. So a few years back, we were doing the same studies with boron that, hey, we, we're getting more response. We can get our boron levels up. And so Brian wanted to take the jump and put on, was it three pounds or was it five pounds that, that, I that was the trigger? It was, it was a large number, more boron than we'd ever put on in a single application before. And Brian's like, yep, I think we should do it. Let's do it in this field and do it in this field. And I said, hold on, let's do it in the field that you own right over here. That's right by the road to the field day. And let's see if you're really confident in this. Well, He's like, all right, let's try it. And it was our highest yielding field that year. Well, the, the, here, here's the thing. And growing up in the farm, seriously, for everybody in the room, chances are you're farming with somebody in your family, right? Okay. And I, I'd love it if we all got along great. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And we usually have disagreements. And dad usually wins or mom or whatever, right? Because they have the pocketbook as, as opposed to when you're young. 
So what, how Darren and I settle uh, disagreements like that is we're always like, well, let's try it in the field. So I would just encourage your parents or whatever to say, okay, we don't have to do this on all our acres, but at least let's try this on 10 or 20 or whatever. Let's do some experiments and try some things out and see if my way is right or maybe your way is right. Either way is fine. Either way we win because now we've learned something. All right, we'll be right back after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. This is Ag PhD Radio. Apparently, Darren's microphone isn't working, so it's my dream come true. But anyway, we just wrapped up our scouting and scholarships event here, and we're taking live questions from our audience. Let's get to our next one in the back right there. Go ahead, sir. Hi, I'm uh, Adam from Nebraska, and I was just wondering, how is corn affected differently from frost damage compared to hail damage? Well, it's it's really two totally different things and a lot of times it's very different timings but the way it's similar is this the growing point on corn is below ground until you hit v6 and so almost any damage you're going to have above ground until v6 on that corn plant doesn't mean much doesn't impact yield a whole lot I brought this up to everybody that, w that it was at my station outside today. I just said, if you want, you can look up the hail charts. I know Iowa State University has hail charts, but there are other universities that have that too. And then you can see, all right, what damage do I have here? And uh, universities have plenty of information out there on frost damage as well. Universities work with the insurance companies to provide the data to the insurance companies. So when they come out, they can tell you, oh, here's, here's what we need to do. But anyway, the thing with the hail is it, it, it happens so much later in the year. So that's why I don't know if I've ever had this question before, because um, when I think about hail on corn, I'm usually thinking about big plants. When it's frost damage, it's a small plant. Well, the other thing is when it's frost damage, it's cold out, right? And so think about how fast your recovery is going to be when it's really cold. And oftentimes that is early in the season. We have more cloudy days, more rainy days. It, it, it just... It seems like it takes forever to come out of that compared to, let's just say that you get hail and it's, it's moderate damage, not terrible. Uh, you're hot. You're warm. You've just got a rain. Uh, the crop's growing fast. You've got a big root system underneath you pushing energy up. It, it seems like we can come out of things a little quicker, but uh, I know neither one is fun. You go out in the field and you look at it. My best advice usually is have somebody else who doesn't own the field look at it. Because if it's your field and you own it, you think it's terrible and it's the end of the world. And I know for me, it's like, oh, we're going to have to replant here. But if I get no, somebody my... else to look at it, they're like, okay, calm down, calm down. It's okay. The growing point's fine. Uh, we just need to wait a week and then come back. I always want to look at everything myself. Try to take the emotion out of it and just look at the stats and then you're good to go. All right. Uh, next question's over here. Yep. So... Uh, just my name is Josh from Minnesota. Just wondering what uh, you guys' opinions are on putting tile in the ground during the growing season versus waiting till late fall after harvest. Awesome. Well, when is the best time to tile? Uh, today is the best answer, and next fall is the second best answer. So if I can get out there uh, without doing major disturbance to my crop, I want to get going. Now, even if I have to do major disturbance, I'm willing to do that sometimes. I was driving through western Minnesota last year, and I saw a farmer who literally left strips unplanted in his field 
because he was going to run his main lines through and they were going to be pretty big. It was that important to him that he got his mains in. Uh, so his goal was going to get the main get the mains in now, right in the middle of the season when he could get the contractor to come. And then in the fall, eventually he was going to get all the lateral lines run. But he said, if I at least got the mains out there, I can get some water moving. And you know what? Maybe I could even do the lateral lines myself. Uh, so that's one thing we'll see farmers that have tile plows say, you know what? I'm comfortable doing four-inch lines, six-inch lines, lateral work. But if I have to put 12-inch or 18 or bigger for mains, I'm going to hire somebody else to do that. So I, I do like that in the middle of the season because you can get guys to come. I mean, if you say, hey, can you come in July and do some tiling for me? They'll be like, you bet. We got no other place to go. But you ask in the fall, and sometimes they have wait lists that might be into next year before they can get to you. We'll usually say, what, Brian, 12 inches or so with our crop? Up to 12 inches, we could do it with minimal disturbance, and we'll we'll tile up to 12 inches or so. Yep, and 12 inches is also kind of our rule with frost in the ground. As long as we have frost in the ground that's less than 12 inches, we can keep tiling, and there's no real problem. Once the frost gets deeper than 12, it starts getting a little hard. And also, it's very late in the season, and we don't have a lot of people who are super excited about jumping into the pit to get wet. All right, let's take yep. another question here. Hello, my name is Chris, and I'm from Wyoming. And I had a question on the uh, soil pits out there. It's kind of the first time I've ever seen that actually implemented or me seeing in the pit before. And so my question is, where in a field would you place those pits? And is there any specific time you'd want to start looking into the pits, you know, versus growth in a plant? Yep. Usually we like it when the plant is fully grown. So with corn, that means tassel that's when the root size is maximized so you can do it from tassel and on with soybeans it's fairly late in the year by the time that actually reaches its maximum size and you can see the maximum root size i'll, I'll say this um, the further you go in the field the more you're going to have to tear down the first field that we ever did a root pit in was a couple miles north and this was over 20 years ago on some of our dad's ground and he was all disturbed about it because we were going to rip up his great crop and i go dad how much is a corn plant worth? At the time, we had $2 corn. It was worth, the corn was, we we're lucky to have every ear worth, be worth a penny. Okay, so we ripped up, let's call it 500 plants. How many dollars is that? That's $5. I said, here's five bucks. Okay, it's fine. So my point is, even if you have to go into the field a little ways, it's not a big deal. Even today, okay, corn's worth three or four times as much. It's still not that big a deal. But I would just say get off the end rows into the field a little bit, and then you're going to see what is reasonable. Because on the end rows, that's where you're turning around. You're probably going to have more compaction. It's not going to look the same there. Yeah, but if you're really curious about something, you've got some major soil-type changes or something out there, maybe that will lead you to where to pull that or put that root pit in. But uh, I don't know. I think just getting a root pit anywhere on your farm is, is a major step, and you learn some things. and. Uh, for me, I wanted to see how deep are my roots getting. The first root pit that we dug, we had a drought year like this. Corn was rolling up on top. We dug the pit, and the next morning it was full of water, and it hadn't rained. There was water in the soil, but it was below a compaction layer, and our roots couldn't get to it. That really opened our eyes and changed how we farmed. So it didn't, it, yeah, for five bucks and a little bit of work, we, we figured out something that changed our whole farming career. All right, uh, another question back here. Uh, I'm Zeka De Silva from SDSU, Brookings. So um, I have been in South Dakota uh, about three years ago, 
just about curiosity. But I never uh, heard people talking about rice production. They only talk about corn, soybeans, yep. and maybe wheat. So have you ever tried producing rice here in South Dakota and then you don't have a good result or you never tried it? You know, that's a great question. We do actually have some rice growing out here at the field day site, just a small amount. Uh, and it, it's uh, it's not a crop grown up in this market very often. Uh, so I, I don't exactly understand why not. Uh, but it, it's one we got a little bit of experience with. You know, when, when you think about that, it's grown differently in different parts of the world. We were down in Brazil. They were raising some upland dry land rice. Uh, and then we've certainly been in the southern part of this country yep. where, where they're flooding fields and stuff for weed control. So kind of kind of different practices. And the reason why they were raising it in Brazil was because they had really low pH to start with. And they couldn't afford to put all the lime on that they needed in the beginning, but they at least wanted to get something growing out there. So the rice was more tolerant of the low pH. We, a lot of times up here, and especially as you go north, we have high pH soil. So I think that, I assume that's one of the reasons why there isn't as much rice. But, I mean, most everything comes down to economics when we're talking about farming. Even wheat around here, there was a lot of wheat raised 30 years ago, 50 years ago, but now it's almost all corn and soybeans because when we try to raise wheat, even if we have the best yield in the state, it's still not good enough for, for what we can make on corn and soybeans. So economics has driven most of that. Beyond that, I don't, I don't well, really with know. Our, with our climate and our soil, we are ideally suited for growing corn and soybeans. And I know everybody that farms in this region would be like, oh, I don't know if there's really an ideal year or ideal fields that we're going to get great yields. But we do get better yields historically year in and year out than we do on, on some of the other crops. And that ultimately ends up being why we're raising what we're raising here. All right, uh, and say, Alex, just real quick, and uh, we, can, we can turn these lights down. We're going to show on the slides here in our next segment our winners for our scholarships. are giving away over 70 scholarships. We're going to do that right after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. And we're back with Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We are uh, following the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships Clinic. And one of the fun things about this is the scholarship portion of that. We've got uh, 70 winners of scholarships here I think today. It's over we've got, 70. We've got folks well, from uh, a lot of different universities and technical schools across the country. And that's really fun for us just to, uh, to get the questions and, and different opinions and ideas of, of what's going on out there. And just to feel all that excitement. There, there is a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for young people getting into agriculture. And if you're thinking about, hey, you know what, that could be me someday. I, I might uh, follow up with uh, post-secondary work trying to learn more about agriculture. I'd strongly encourage you to do so. The, the career opportunities in ag have never been better. It's a great time to get into this industry. All right. So in the in past years, we've had fewer scholarship winners. This is the most we've ever had. So in the past, we would announce people and they'd come up front and everything. We got over 70. So we're not going to make all the announcements. But, but, but what we are going to do is put those on the screen. And Danny, you can go ahead. So we'll have 11 different slides here. If you are joining us in person, you will be able to see these on the screen. Hopefully at some point, Daniel will get that. But otherwise, 
If we continue to have technical problems, then uh, we'll tell you right afterwards. Uh, we also, right afterwards, have a couple of drawings for you, so uh, definitely stick around right afterwards. It'll just take a couple of minutes. Um, I, I would say, well, she's working on that. Let's continue taking a couple more agronomic questions. If we got anybody that's got an agronomic question left. Yep, yep, yep. we got one right yep. here. Okay. Hi, this is uh, Kelly from Western North Dakota. A quick comment and a question about a myth and uh, some insect control. My, my comment is that, uh, you know, thanks so much, guys. I've been a, a avid watcher of the show and all your other media productions, and uh, all of it's been free to me. Uh, even growing up on the farm, my education has been many times blessed by all the uh, things that you guys have done for us farmers. And I would just say if there's any... Uh, farmers out there with young children to get them involved in this program ASAP. Uh, so my, my question about a myth, uh, we were out uh, with our uh, sweeping nets with, with Darren looking at insects, and we're now in the uh, first day of spraying for grasshoppers, pretty early in western North Dakota, spraying for grasshoppers. Uh, we had a drought last year, and so I, I think there's some buildup from that. Yep. Uh, with this year, we've actually had some timely rains, and now we're seeing early grasshoppers. And one of the myths that I've heard is that there's some sort of fungus that grasshoppers will get early on if there's uh, yep. rain, or maybe it's true. No, that's true. That's not a myth. <laughs> yep. So, uh, so maybe you killed some of them off. <laughs> so, 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 what's, so what's your question? Go ahead. Yeah, so do you have any recommendations on grasshopper control? Sure do. Spray. Uh, <laughs> You're doing the right thing, Kelly. It's perfect. Well, well here's the thing. Thanks, we want to get them on the early side, and, and pre preferably if we could get them when they're on the borders of the fields. And I, I know that isn't always the case because sometimes they're kind of already spread through the field. But it, it's funny because, it, as Brian says, spray them, spray them. Sometimes people say, oh, man, you guys are always into chemical controls of weeds and bugs and whatever. No, we're not. We hope you never have to use that stuff. That's a last resort. But with grasshoppers, what we see a lot on our farm anyway, is they start out in the ditches and the field edges. And if we can spray them on the edges of the field, we can wipe them out before they uh, get into the field. And then the other tip that I'd have is spray them before they get wings. Once they get wings, they're in the adult phase and they're laying eggs. So if you can get them early, they haven't laid eggs, you aren't going to see them uh, continue to explode in population that would be a big deal. So get them early and get them on the edges. All right. So for those in our in attendance here, we're just going to continue scrolling through these slides with our winners. We'll keep answering agronomic questions as we go, though. Uh, again, today we're giving away over 70 scholarships to post-secondary schools. We're super happy to do this. And there are many other companies that are helping us with this. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you the list here shortly. Let's take the next agronomic question before we get to that, though. Hey guys, uh, my name is Caden. I'm farming down in Nebraska. Thank you very much for having me today. Yep. Um, my question is, we've had some few fields with uh, iron deficiency. Um, what are some solutions for the chlor chlorosis beans and when to, when's the best supply and what are the negative effects on it? Okay, great question. Yep. In soybeans, iron deficiency chlorosis is a real problem. We see yellow leaves with green veins. And for, for anybody who hasn't experienced that so far, I'm glad you haven't. Uh, but it could happen to you as well. So there are a couple of fixes that we'd have for iron deficiency chlorosis. The first thing that I'd like to see done is pull a soil sample in that area. Um, we've actually done a lot of plant tissue analysis too, and we found in the plant tissue analysis more times than not we've got plenty of iron in the plant. 
yet the plant is showing iron deficiency. So what's going on? When the pH gets high, especially over 7, but uh, as we approach 8, we see that iron convert into the ferric form instead of the ferrous form. Uh, so if you've taken chemistry classes, you know there's a iron with a positive 2 charge and an iron with a positive 3 charge. Well, uh, one is available for the plant to use and the other one's not. So even though the plant can bring in the iron, you have plenty of iron showing up on a soil test or a tissue test, you're going to run short in that plant because it's in the wrong form and it's not ready. It's kind of like you, you're thirsty, but I give you an ice cube uh, and you say, well, that's nice, Darren, or I give you steam and you say, well, that's nice. I just want liquid water, preferably at about 50 degrees. That would be wonderful. <laughs> so having things in the wrong form is no good. So the first thing I'd say is figure out why that pH is high. Oftentimes it's a drainage issue out in the field. If it is, you can improve drainage. Uh, you may have pattern tile in the field. This may be halfway in between your tile lines, but your soil is too heavy and you need, need tile more frequently in the field. That's very common. Uh, the other thing you can do is you can add uh, chelated iron at planting time, but what you need is an ortho-ortho chelated uh, version. So it's not your, your typical uh, iron chelate. So there are some specifically chelated products to be available and you need to put that out at planting time to really improve yield. You can spray those types of products on later and green a crop back up, but the yield loss has already occurred. So improve drainage, uh, look at those soil tests. If you've got a high pH, figure out how you can get it down. So if we've got a pH less than seven, we don't see iron deficiency chlorosis as a big problem. But I, I would say when iron deficiency chlorosis is a problem, yeah, it can really have a negative impact on yield. So we absolutely want to get that addressed as quickly as possible. The, the trouble is usually people are saying, oh, I got to have the right resistant bean or the right tolerant soybean. But what I always say is, boy, if I can just fix my soil, I can get my pH down below 7, all of a sudden I can pick any variety I want, and the odds are I can get a lot higher yield because now I don't have to have this one variety that's done well on IDC in my area. But yeah, it's all pH. So if I just get my pH below 7, I'm good to go. I will never have iron deficiency chlorosis issues again. And the, the key thing as an agronomist or farmer is to figure out why I have that issue and what I need to do to get that pH down because it's usually not going to happen instantaneously. I mean, I can force it to happen instantaneously, but you won't like the cost. All right, got time for one more question probably. Hey, I'm Hayden from Southeast Minnesota, and I just have a quick question here. Um, we've been seeing a lot of armyworm outbreaks in Southeast Minnesota. Yep. Yes. I'm just wondering how many, because it's on the cover crop when they put beans in, um, how many times should we be looking if we're just seeing minimal feeding on the perimeters of the fields? You know, and how, how big are the armyworms already? I've seen some of them that look like they're getting some good size. Right, them. half inch to three quarters of an inch. So, like, when's the time to spray for them? Stuff like that. So, okay. So, here, here's the whole thing. People, in my opinion, try to get too fancy with this. It was fine when we had a dollar and 30 cent corn 17 years ago, and I, I literally had no dollars to spend. Today, I got all kinds of dollars I'm trying to protect on the farm. And I'm not screwing around. So when I see any armyworms, I'm spraying immediately. And this is also why I will always tell all farmers, please have insecticide on hand always. Because if you see armyworms, you need to spray today, not tomorrow or the next day. Because armyworms, I mean, they're called armyworms because they move in like an army and they literally can wipe your field out. And that can happen sometimes overnight. I've seen it. 
So don't let that thing go. You want to spray right away. And especially if you're there on the field borders in the ditches, go spray right in that area. It only costs a few dollars. It's $3 so an acre. So full rate okay. of a pyrethroid. Yep, full rate of a pyrethroid. All right. We're, we're just about to wrap up our show today. We've been scrolling through all these uh, scholarship winners here. Again, we gave away, we're giving away over 70 scholarships today, but it's not just us. Uh, yes, we are, we are giving a number away at Ag PhD, but we also have several other companies, and we really, really want to thank them. AgroLiquid. C&B Operations, FMC, Titan Machinery, UPL, and Belsham. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate it, and, and everybody here does as well. Uh, we can't do these kind of things without some great support that we get from a number of different companies. So, so thanks a lot for that. That's been awesome. Well, you also notice in our program, uh, there's quite a few companies out there looking for interns, looking for full-time positions in agriculture. It's an exciting time to come out. Uh, thank you for all of you uh, who are going to school. You're the future of agriculture. We really appreciate the work that you're putting in right now. We look forward to seeing you full-time on farms and, and in ag businesses across the country. It's going to be fun. Well, thanks for listening to our show today. Be sure to tune in each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.